0: Welcome back to the Too Dumb to Quit podcast with Jeremy McCall. Very talented, god awful ugly. <laughs> so, my guest today, dear friend, amazing man, uh, you, you people are going to be blown away today by the story that you're going to hear from my friend Robin Majors. Robin! Yeah. <laughs> What's up, dude? Blown away! Hey, my brother. I'm doing great. You're home off the road, huh? Home off the road for Lewis. So are you? Yeah, I am. You've had a little time. I did. This yeah. is awesome. So, for those of you that don't know, uh, when I, I first met Robin Majors, in I was like 17 years old at a club that I own now. Uh, it used to be called Kelly's and State Line, and I think Robin came through there. Uh, he's a tour manager, which we're going to have him explain what that means to people outside of the industry. But um, he was a tour manager for John Barry. Were you sure Kelly with John Barry?
1: I was wondering if it was John Barry came or it wasn't trolley. Highway 101. It had to no. be John Barry. Or Montgomery Gentry. <laughs> No, I think it was the first time, I'm pretty sure. It was John Barry. It was John Barry. But we did play it with Black Hawk also. Yeah. <clears throat> I remember. Yes. Because I think uh, that was the first time I'd played it in the winter, and we had the back closed. Ooh. <laughs> it's winter there right now. <laughs> yeah. It's
0: 98 uh, degrees in Nashville, and it is three feet of snow on the top of Montana passes. <laughs> it's crazy, man. Yeah, so, so we
1: played that, uh, Little Club Kelly's, and yeah. God, Kelly was a great guy, too. Yes. I'm so glad you own that place now. Yeah. I'm
0: glad it's the tradition's carrying on. It's amazing, and it's just yeah. turned into kind of what it was in the old days. Um, it's packed every weekend. The acts that are coming through are all really good quality, and um, and the crowds are eating it up. You know, it's you've had what about five years now? Five years this month, yeah. Oh, five right. year anniversary this month. Right on, man, it's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. So when I first got my gig as a tour manager with Larry the Cable Guy, I didn't even know what that meant. I was like <laughs> twenty three years old. Yeah, and I had had Robin's number through the radio or whatever with maybe Eddie and Wix. Troy Wicks, maybe. Yeah and uh met up with you and there were two guys that i would call incessantly with questions uh you and pootie Locke.
1: <laughs> from, uh, i'm honored to be in that <laughs> yeah because pootie and i go back to 1977 probably wow yeah. and pootie was with willie nelson
0: for 30 40 years yeah, yeah until he passed yeah um so, take us through. You grew up in the Carolinas? I got me to tell the story first. Okay. Take me through this. How this all starts, how Robin got it. Let's start with, with
1: Jeremy story. McComb first. This is a funny ass story, in my opinion. Uh, so, you were working um, with Larry, the cable guy. Right. I met you guys in a Florida show one time. Y'all came in at a, I believe, around. Uh, I think it was around Orlando you and Larry showed yeah. up and Larry really didn't have he didn't have anything going on that much yet no it hadn't happened yet uh, that, yeah. that, the the, for, the thing that they did with Fox the, the TV Collar. show yeah, yeah. That, that hadn't happened yet right and so here's Jeremy a tour manager with a comedian and we had <laughs> as our Jim Beam rep who used to be our record label rep Wicks Wickman right and Wicks was trying his best to be a comedian. Yeah, okay. Right? Yes. So, yeah. um, after the tour that year, you come, Bix called and said, hey, I'm going to do this USO thing with me and Jeremy. Yeah. I'm thinking y'all are the going over and tour. doing some comedy stuff. <laughs> okay, so I started my career with Marshall Tucker Band. And uh, my first road manager gig was with um, Highway 101. And the two booking agents that were at Monterey Artists at the time, the agency that books acts, uh, was Bobby Cudd and right. Steve Dahl. Right. And they took me under their wing and taught me how to do things. Well, Bobby Cudd was from Spartanburg, South Carolina. Correct. And he had been telling me, I've got this kid you've got to see. And this was like three years ago. Paul Riddle, the drummer for Marshall Tucker, is doing the production is is this producer you gotta hear this kid so this was like goes like three years i mean this happened then the we met you guys and then you and wicks do this tour yeah and then bobby calls me out of the blue this is like three years later and said hey paul's in town and that kid's playing tonight uh and so I said, great, man. I'll be there. Yeah. Walk in. There's Paul Riddle. There's a band set up. Here's Jeremy McComb is the artist. (laughs) I'm thinking he's a comedian. (laughs) I had no idea you played music. (laughs) That was so funny. That's
0: one of my favorites. Because that night, I remember, like, you walked in and you were like, Jeremy, what are you doing here? I'm playing. Tonight? (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know you did music. I thought you were a fucking comedian. (laughs) Uh,
1: That's great. That's just one of my favorite stories. And it blew me away. And and unbeknownst to everybody out there listening right now, we just called Paul Riddle and talked to him for a couple of minutes. The Marshall Tucker Band, I started with them in 1977 as uh, a third man on an audio crew um because I shot a staple in my hand and they had to hire me the sound company had to hire me or I, I was going to sue them, sue them?
0: <laughs> that's what they thought had you ever been on the road before that
1: no i quit college to go to work with this band out of Knoxville called Rich Mountain Tower which is another interesting story i, I don't know how long your podcast is we got is. time we got all the time you want uh, i was going to college at motlow i'm from tellahoma tennessee okay and uh, i was going to college at motlow and uh, there was a band out of knoxville uh, university of tennessee uh, pickers and um, they had a little band called rich mountain tower how to deal on atlantic record well the guitar player was from tellahoma and he said hey we're getting the band back together and i was i was over college and uh, he said, uh, do you want to come with me and, and come to... Uh, i got to go to Key West and get this book this gig. So the, long story short, I ended up working for Mountain Sound uh, instead of Rich Mountain Tower. Which was like the production which company. Which was a production company, okay. yeah. And uh, they hired me to, to go out on the road with Marshall Tucker Band. I'd never been on the road whatsoever. Wow. But the, the story about Rich Mountain Tower... They uh, were—the drummer was from New York, and there was some money behind him, Mm -hmm. Uh, Bob Tisillo. I don't know where the money came from, but his name was (laughs) (laughs) Tassillo. We don't ask questions. We don't ask questions. (laughs) So uh, they built their own little sound system. And back in those days, back in the the 70s, regional acts would have the— the sound system and national acts would come through they weren't carrying production yet so they would use the opening acts stuff well charlie daniels came through and used rich mountain tower stuff and said we love this stuff can you build us a sound system we're getting ready to do a national act and they said well it'd be about fifty thousand dollars and they said okay charlie said sure let's build it yeah um Actually, it was Joe Sullivan, the manager at the time. Yeah. So they built that, and then Marshall Tucker did a show with Mar- or with Charlie, saw his stuff, and said, man, we love this stuff. Can you build us a sound system? We won't double the size. They said, well, it'll be $100,000. So Rich Mountain Tower became Mountain Sound in Knoxville. Wow. And that's the way that that happened. That's amazing. Totally. And it, it never happened today, but... right. But that's the way it happened in the, in the mid-70s. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So the drummer was out with Marshall Tucker when this went down with David Carr and said, uh, Tassillo said, hey, man, I want to go back out on the road. I got this kid. I think he'll be great out here. And seven years later, uh, I, I went to work for 38 Special because Toy Caldwell, Paul Riddle, and George McCorkle quit the band that day. So we'd with already Marshall lost Tucker. Tommy with Marshall Tucker. Yeah. So I went out with 38 Special, but I spent seven years with Marshall Tucker at that point. So your
0: first gig is with Marshall <laughs> with Tucker. With Marshall
1: Tucker Band. Cool. And when like, Southern Rock said it was peak. king. Yeah, and I mean, everybody knows
0: <laughs> that, um, for those of you who, who don't know the music business or maybe not into the Southern Rock thing, the Caldwell Brothers are a work study in Southern Rock. I mean, people still talk about Toy Caldwell being... Uh, one of the
1: godfathers of that Southern rock sound. I mean, it was Southern rock. It know? was the, you know, there was there was so many great acts, and we played with all of them. Yeah. It was so much fun. The Almond Brothers were the blues part. We were the jazz part, more yeah. or less, along with uh, the Dixie Dregs and a couple other acts like that. And then, of course, Charlie was right in your face with right. his syncopated moves that they did and all the changes they do in their music, almost jazz itself, And uh, then uh, Jimmy Hall was Uh, Wet Willie, and those guys were a different part of Southern rock, but it was all the same. Little Feet was in the mix. They they were California boys, but gosh, Lowell George writing the stuff he did. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we played with all those guys: Louisiana Larue, Climax Blues Band, um, uh, the Dixie Dregs, uh, Grinder Switch, uh, Black Oak Arkansas. Oh yeah. (laughs) I've written with. with uh
0: uh oh man what was it the ozark mountain daredevils yeah like, jim dandy yeah and uh <laughs> soup du jour right isn't is soup or whatever his name is. Um, so you leave marshall tucker in what is that 83
1: 83 the end of 83 we 83, did our last so show
0: tommy caldwell had passed he
1: passed in 1980 yeah. he had a jeep wreck we had just finished we were just on tour we had just started the tour uh I can't remember the album that was out at the time, but we had just done two shows at Long Island's Nassau Coliseum, Mm. and uh, the second one, we got home and got the news that Tommy had flew home and had a Jeep wreck that morning, and he passed away six days later, so. But we carried on, you know, we we hired uh, uh, Franklin Wilkie, who was in this great band out of Greenville, South Carolina, called, uh, gosh, what was the name of their band? Um, I can't remember. It'll come to me in a minute. Yeah. But uh, we also hired a, another great writer and uh, piano player, a blind piano player named Ronnie Godfrey. Uh, oh, Garfield Ruff was the name of their... Garfield Ruff. <laughs> yeah, was the name of the band over in uh, Greenville at the time. And both of them came from that. And so uh, we carried on without Tommy for about three years. Yeah. And then Toy, Toy and Paul and yeah, uh, hung them, it up. Yeah. yeah.
0: Did... Um, when you were doing that, I mean, how does how does that conversation start? Of like you're running sound, but I mean, you don't have any experience
1: on the road. Well, I was third man audio, so I was setting it up. Um, the uh, two engineers, uh, a guy named Randy Day. And another guy named John Williams, and I have no idea where John's at these days when he finally left. I haven't seen him since that day. He's like that cat in Animal House that drives off with a car. He's right. unknown. You don't know where the hell he's at. Right. Uh, he's kind of like that cat. But uh, they, they just kind of started showing me, and I started mixing opening acts. Yeah. And I started reading all the books around the office and, you know, the Altec, the stuff that was out at the time, and just learning. And then I would sit in the, in the warehouse House and uh, burn a big doobie, and I just sit there and play with the, uh, the equalizers, <laughs> right. make make things ring to learn those tones, right? You know, just where you could catch it, and uh, just within eight months, that John left, and I started mixing the opening acts all the time. Wow! And within a year, uh, about a year and a month or two, some fourteenth months or something like that. Uh, Blackie started mixing. He was their monitor engineer. He started doing lights again. He owned the lighting company, and I started mixing monitors for Tucker. Unreal.
0: So, yeah. What was an average day? I mean, it pro- has it changed a lot.
1: Oh yeah. You know, the big tour then we were playing. Uh, we were playing the arenas that people still play now, uh, but we were doing it in three trucks. Uh, my current job. We have 17 semis out there playing those very same arenas. So uh, nobody was hanging stuff in the air at the time. We were putting things up on uh, what you call vermet legs or genies, and right. uh, putting them up, putting the lights up in the air. We were just putting our sound down on the on the on the floor, on the floor and uh, on the sound wings at least. Yeah. And uh, you know we started flying it soon thereafter. Uh, about 1980, we started flying things in the air, so we hired a rigger right. that would do the points, and and uh, it's changed tremendously. That was a big tour then, three trucks, but our three trucks were packed from the top to the bottom wow. with band gear, merchandise, and everything else. Everything rolls in these days. Right. Everything is has been, and everything weighs a lot less too. We were using oh, yeah. steel then. Uh, and par 64 cans and now you have moving lights and now you have video that you can actually make it work You know, right. instant replay didn't come along till 1967 or something like that That's so, so
0: crazy.
1: you know the technology has grown so much so yeah
0: so um this is robin majors and you would be hard-pressed to find anybody more knowledgeable about the music business when it comes to touring and in uh, the business really overall um you're one of the guys. So there's a, there's a thing in, uh, in kind of this life philosophy I've been living called a plus, an equal, and a minus in your life, right? That you always need somebody who's way better, way above you to keep you in line, to keep you humble, to keep you in check. You I need agree to somebody that. equal to you, you know, to compete with um, or to bounce things off of and make each other better. And then you need people, someone below you who you can teach the things you're learning. We pull it forward. Yes. And you have always been my plus.
1: Oh, man. Thank you you for saying uh, that, bro.
0: You have so much knowledge. I've I've been intimidated, not intimidated in a bad way, but it's like I'm in awe of your knowledge of the business and the people and and the way that you conduct yourself and the way you do business and the way you act as a human being. and, And it's just an amazing thing to know you and your knowledge of this business is crazy. So going from the Marshall Tucker Band, your next gig, is it? Is that your first time tour managing?
1: No, no. Uh, um, I went from Marshall Tucker. Uh, a company out of New York was doing our merchandise. Okay. At, at first, uh, a guy, we had a, a T-shirt company out of Macon, Georgia. Everything was out of Georgia at the time. Sure. But a deal came along. There was this... Uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there remember in the early 70s and through the 80s, there was a company called Rock Bill, And Rock Bill would put out those little... Fold, they'd just hand them out at gigs. Okay. And you would take it home and it'd have something about the band. And they were just advertising stuff. Well, they were a merchandise company and t T-shirt company. And they were our T-shirt company with Tucker. The way it went down with Tucker... <sighs> I, I hate to say this right. because it was it, Paul Riddle and Toy Caldwell knew that they were quitting and what had come down to us the crew guys we were going to take six months off oh. and so I found another gig I just had my first child uh, Anna was born in uh, April in December of 83 we were going to take off for six months so I took a gig with on the 38 special tour working with the t-shirts company okay. Brockham and um, I went to Paul first and Toy together actually, and I said, "Hey man, this is my last night." And Paul's the one that turned to me, looked at Toy, and said, "Hey, this is our last this night too." Everybody's last night. <laughs> yeah, but that wasn't the case. Marshall Tucker's still out there working. Sure, Doug sure. Gray carried it on, and Jerry stuck with the band at that time also. Yeah, uh, and they went out as Marshall Tucker, and they're still killing it, in my yeah. opinion. Uh, there's a lot of fans that love that old that type of music and I'm one of them yeah uh, Doug Gray is, is was I was his axe for seven years man and so you gotta see how tight we got and right. it, it hurt to leave that family but I had a new family of my own right. and I had to do something so I went to work for Brockham I did the 38 special tour uh, I learned a lot what I what I really learned from that, though, was finances and dealing with people in the building. I was having to advance shows with uh, how many booths and tables and uh, the percentages and having to do settlements at the end of the night with them. Ooh. So that carried over when I became a tour manager. I had some financial experience. Yeah. So that you know was a stepping stone to becoming a tour manager. If you look back at it and with that retrospect, right. In my opinion. Uh, I did the 38... I did that for about five years. Uh, I did 38 Special. I did the Jackson Victory Tour. Uh, I was out with... Um Oh gosh! Jackson Victory Tour was Michael Jackson. It was the Jackson Brothers. It was Jackson 5, more or less. Oh, my. But Randy was out there also. So this was 84. And, and 38 Special was finishing up their 110 shows, and they said, hey, we want Robin back to finish the tour. So they grabbed me back. But I, I trained. We had seven people, and I trained a couple of people out for Brockham for that. And then it became, uh, I quit, the, I tried my best to get off the road, but you know how the money you make and the bills you make for yourself, it doesn't always, Sure. you can't make it work. So I worked TNN, and I got my union card in Nashville, I moved to Nashville, and I worked for IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage employees, right? And I got my union card, and I started working at TNN. I was on Nashville. Now I was audio guy on there for a while. Really?
0: Yeah. I didn't know
1: that. Yeah. And uh, Mel McDaniel's it's come. So. Mel McDaniel's came through and needed a tour manager, and a lot of people were Mel's tour managers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So I took that gig and went back on the road for about nine weeks. I think I got fired three times and quit twice in nine weeks. Is that hard to deal with? It was one of those things that some days it was, um, if his wife was out there, it wasn't too bad. (laughs) Let's just leave it right there. Yeah, gives you a little little check. (laughs) So so I came back home and uh, I went right back to the union work. Yeah. And uh, how, it's funny, Highway 101 was just coming along, and they were on the CMAs that year as the new group. They had been in the Hank video. Oh. And I was assigned to that cart all day. Uh, so I was dealing with Cactus Moser all day long, the drummer for Highway 101. Right. And as we kept talking, he said, hey, man, we need a tour manager. And I said, I tried that with Mel McDaniels. I don't ever want to do this <laughs> shit again. <laughs> So I said, if you need an audio guy, I'm your guy. Right. December comes along. This isn't October. December comes along of '87, and Brockham calls and says, "Hey, we got our first country act, and it's a group called Highway 101." And Chuck Morris uh, was was the manager for them. And Chuck, I'd worked with Chuck out in Denver. Barry Fay was the big promoter in Denver area at the time and he did Red Rocks and McNichols and all wow. those places. And so uh, I took the gig with back with Brockham and went out with Highway 101 and they had a guy named Jim Sider out there. Jim Sider was the tour manager for the birds. Whoa. <laughs> And he was rock and roll, and he was pissing off country promoters <laughs> left and right.
0: Right. You know? Well, in, in the country music world, it's very much a good old boy network. It's yeah. It's your friends. It's how you've treated people in the past, and rock and roll guys are like, yeah, fuck them if on, they don't like it. If you're good on
1: the way up, you can work for them on the way down. Right. And if you don't, you're shit out of luck. Yeah. You know, basically. Right. So I got out with Highway 101, and... Um, They weren't doing that good of business yet. They just had, they were on their second single. Mm. And uh, Brockham said, Hey, we got to pull you off that. We just can't pay you that kind of money and be out there. And uh, we're going to put you out with this group called, uh, they're opening for Iron Maiden, a group called Guns N' Roses. No way. You were out with Guns N' Roses, too? I was. We were all on one bus. I've known you 20 years. I didn't know that. You're on one bus with one Guns N' Roses. with Guns N' Roses. We had a 22-foot box truck that the Merch rode in with the equipment. Holy shit. in for
0: shit.
1: This was 87. And, and this was the first of 88. So I was out with them, and uh, they only had two crew guys. And every third night, somebody had to drive the truck Okay. somebody different. And it just got... I mean, these guys were brand new. They were having fun. Oh. I had done that in the 70s. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, so I just started driving the truck every night, basically. It, what the hell? You just... Uh, I just... Yeah, the, the party. I, well, yeah. They they were up quite late. I bet. Yeah.
0: So anyway... Um, Who was... I mean, was Slash... Like the Slash thing... The how, What was that dynamic of Slash and Axle and...
1: I, I, I had very little to do with them. You didn't, all right. Because uh, they would come in and go straight to the back room, <clears throat> and I wasn't hanging around in back rooms anymore. Right. So <laughs> I don't know what they were doing, and I don't care what they were doing. But I know that the music was blasting until about 6 a.m. I bet. And and that was that. Damn. And in the middle of the whole deal, and I'll tell you, I'll give you a slash story in a second, but in the middle of the whole deal... Uh, Highway 101. Cactus called and said, "Hey, Jim Siders, quit. We need a tour manager. Would you reconsider?" I called Brockham and I said, "Hey, I can get out there with 101, do their merch, if you'll let me double dip, and I'm going to be their tour manager." Yeah. And I ended up being their audio engineer too, so I was I was tritextual instead of bitexual. Oh my gosh, <laughs> tritextual. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I, I went to I went to Slash because he was a Les Paul slinging guitar playing motherfucker man. Yeah. I went to Slash and he had his glasses on. And I said, "Man, this is my last night. I want to tell you, I've really enjoyed your picking. You remind me of Toy Caldwell yeah. playing that Les Paul." And he put his glasses up above his eyes and he said, "Who the fuck are you?" <laughs> Swear to God. I'd been on his bus for nine weeks. (laughs) So I think I made the right decision. I don't think so. Yeah. (laughs) Who
0: the fuck are you? I can't imagine the amount of shit going on early on in that Guns N' Roses.
1: Oh, well, you know what was fascinating? Iron Maiden was doing great business. And you look at uh, the numbers and merchandise, you look at per head. If they were doing 10,000 people a head. You did $40,000 of merch, you're doing four bucks ahead. Yeah. I got out there, Guns N' Roses was doing 50 cents ahead. Uh, Iron Maiden was doing four bucks ahead. Wow. We started doing a buck ahead, and Appetite for Destruction just took off. Pretty soon we were doing two bucks ahead. And I watched the same thing, that same uh, dynamic happening with uh, when I was out with 38 Special. Huey Lewis was the opening act, and one a new drug had just hit. And Damn. they were doing 50 cents ahead. Yeah. And pretty soon they were doing a buck ahead. We were doing three bucks ahead. They were doing two bucks ahead. Pretty soon we were even doing 250 each, you know? Right. That, that kind of There's only so much money they're going to spend every night. Sure. So, uh, yeah, it was that same little dynamic. That's, Guns and Roses took off with the merch. Fucking
0: unreal. Yeah. And the fact that that whole thing happened based on like one video spin on MTV at four in the morning. Yeah. They played fucking um, what was the big hit? Uh, shit, sing it to me. <laughs> Where do, no right? Where do? Uh, oh, welcome now to the jungle. Go yeah,
1: now. that's right. Where do we go?
0: <laughs> yeah. So welcome to the jungle hits at fucking four o'clock in the morning and it explodes. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah.
1: So you leave and go back to
0: Highway 101.
1: I did. I went back to Highway 101. I was their tour manager. A couple of interesting things happened during all that. Uh, You know, record sales at the time, uh, you would call, when they did the Billboard Top 200, they would call the record labels, the local uh, record stores. Right. Say, how many did you sell this week? And they'd say, "Ah, I guess I sold six, eight. Well, they started doing Arbitron at that time, 1990, I believe it was. And at the time, when you look at the top two hundred charts or the top one hundred charts, whatever it was, of album sales, there were I think four albums of country music on the on the charts. Uh, Probably Dwight, right. uh, uh, Randy Travis. Right. Garth wasn't out. Well Garth had just started. So the week after they started Arbitron, there were twenty six records on the on the top one hundred. Oh. And so L.A. and New York said, what the fuck's going on in Nashville, man? Right. That's kind of where the whole little, that new wave started at that time. The HADAC had started. When they started the Arbitron ratings system rather than just on a Some telephone. Some guy going, like, yeah, I think I sold six of them last right. I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that was kind of interesting. Wow. Yeah. But Highway 101 was... Uh, uh, Chuck Morse was their manager. He had Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, uh, Desert Rose Band, uh, Lyle Lovett, and uh, all of those
0: are literally top ten favorites of them
1: And uh, Big Head Todd and the Monsters, really? Uh, yeah, and Leo O'Kocky. I mean, he had a, quite a, 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 a roster. A roster at the time. Yeah. yeah. So it was a lot of fun. We played a lot of those acts, but it was also Bobby Cut and, and Monterey had just opened up their office in Nashville. Steve had moved from Tulsa to open that up. Country music took off right after that, big wow. time. The acts took off, so
0: unbelievable. So
1: when the big um, when the big
0: swell of like Nashville started taking over, who were you with at that point? Were you would?
1: Uh, so I, like, I, I, I went mean, from Highway 101. Uh, David Corlew that manages Charlie Daniels mm. called me, and he had a new act uh, that Jimmy Boyne was uh, was working with called uh, John Berry. that's who you and I first met. John should have been the next Julio Iglesias, in my opinion. He's such a good singer. Still a great singer. Yeah. He's got a Christmas show that people need to see. I talked to him just recently, and he told me that they're booked up for the whole winter for this Christmas show. Wow. Uh, I did that for about five years. Does he do a Nashville show? I need Uh, to go see it. Yeah, you need to go see it. I need to go with you. It's in Gallatin is the last one that I saw. Okay. Yeah. No, it was in Lebanon. Yeah. He's but he's going to do probably 40 shows this winter. Wow. Yeah. And it's it's really good. Um, and so I did five years there, and then I went to work with Blackhawk. Yeah. Uh, Henry Paul and uh, those One of the
0: guys. most underrated acts in country music still. They were
1: doing great on radio at the time. Yeah. You know, they were on Atlantic Records and had a good staff over there, a good uh, promotion team. And Blackhawk was kicking ass. Yeah. And to deal with John, he had brain surgery, and then he had to have throat surgery. And again, I had two more babies, and him and Gus had come along, and it was time for me to to move on. Yeah. Uh, So I went to work for Blackhawk for a little while, and then uh, October of 1999, I got a call from Johnny Doris, and he said, hey, man, we need a tour manager for uh, Montgomery Gentry. Yeah. Yeah. For Black uh, this... (laughs) You got time for one more story? We talk too. We talk all damn day. I love this. Johnny Doris called me, and and I was bi-textual. I was mixing house and tour managing for Blackhawk, yeah, and John Barry and Highway 101. I was doing all of that. So when Johnny Doris called, uh, I was happy. We were having a blast out with Blackhawk. You can imagine with Henry Paul and the music. Yeah. The crowds we were getting, the fans that they have. Radio hits. Radio hits. We were having a blast. So I shot my price way up, about 20% more than I was making, thinking, okay, i got to go mix. I don't really want to leave. I'm just going to throw it up. So I met with Johnny Doris, the manager for them. Johnny's never heard this story. I went with him and uh, talked with him, told him what I had to have, and he said, man, you're asking a lot of money. I said, well, that's my nut. That's right. what I'm going to have to have. I said, who else are you talking to? And he told me a guy's name. I said, uh, man, he's a great engineer, but I didn't know he tour managed. And he told me another name. I said, well, he's a great tour manager. Does he mix? Yeah. Just shit like that. And just kept talking. So he said, well, I walked out and thinking, okay, had a great conversation. I like Johnny a lot. Yeah. Didn't think I'd ever hear anything. A couple of weeks later, he called. He says, Eddie and Troy wants to meet you. I had met Eddie Montgomery. He was the merchandise guy with John Michael.
0: Okay.
1: He was out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was wide open like he still is. Yes, he is. He hadn't is. changed a bit since the day I met him. Mm-hmm. So I went to this meeting. That's Longhorn, which was their office. Right. This <laughs> <laughs> is like a pizza place or some yeah. shit now. Yeah. So... uh Eddie starts asking me all these very pertinent questions. Troy's sitting over there with just rolling his head, rolling his eyes, wringing his hands. First thing Troy Gentry ever said to me was, you're asking too goddamn much money. (laughs) I looked at him. I said, well, man, that's my nut. I got to have it. Right. Walked out of there. Didn't think anything about it. Thought, okay, I'm happy. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Doris calls and says, hey, man, I see on your schedule you're off next weekend. The boys want you to ride down to Florida with them. they got two shows. I said, okay, I'll get on the bus. Yeah. Get on the bus, ride down there, uneventful. Troy Gentry's not talking to me. (laughs) (laughs) We get down to Florida. It's raining like hell. They cancel the show. They start drinking. This is 10 o'clock in the morning. Jim Beam comes out. Jim Beam comes out. They didn't have a Jim Beam deal either. Yeah just to let everybody know they took that Jim Beam deal they weren't going to take any other deal because they were Jim Beam Kentucky whiskey drinkers and they were Kentucky boys and that was going to be that's all they did so uh, uh, Troy says here have a shot of Jim Beam I says no man I'll have a beer he says have a shot of whiskey we drink whiskey on this bus I said dude I quit drinking whiskey a long time ago when I quit a lot of other shit that they do on Guns N' Roses bus. Right. <laughs> I said, no, I'll have a beer. He turns to Johnny Dorsey and he says, we hired the wrong son of a bitch for this gig. I said, first, you ain't hired me yet, and second, I count you money every night. He looked at me real sly and he said, have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> so we do the whole weekend. They have the next show. We do the show. Uh, a guy named Pete McDonough's out there mixing uh, sound for him, and so I go to we get home, and Johnny says, "Well, they want you, but you know uh, I can't pay you that money right now. But I promise you, in six months, I'll we'll get it up we'll to what you're out. asking." Yeah, I believed him uh, to be an honest man, and he was an honest man to the to the to the day. Six months later, I got that raise. Nice. So. uh I asked the question, I said, Well, what about Pete? And he says, You don't like his mix? I said, No, I think he does fine. And it hit me. They're not hiring me to mix. They're just, I'd give them a price to both be the audio engineer. Uh, and it hit my head. And I said, No, man, he does a great job. Yeah, he's a wonderful I guy. I kept my mouth shut and kept that money, brother. There you go.
0: Dan, <laughs> I've got, I don't know if you know, I, um, so when, when I first started, uh, hanging around uh, Eddie and Troy with you and with Wix and uh, it was funny because I mean me and Wix talked about it all the time I'm like we should just switch buses I don't know what the fuck we're doing I'm like you're a comedian I'm a songwriter you know trying to be a songwriter and uh, and um, then once I, I finally got the chance to go out and do some shows you know Troy had those light up mic stands
1: yeah. remember those yeah
0: and and um, it Jeff Grinninger built those for him. Goofy, yeah.
1: goofy built those. Goofy. Yeah.
0: And so I called Goofy when we were doing my live record because we were going to do, like, a DVD with it. And I go, hey, does Troy still have you know, those, those goofy-ass light-up mic stands? And he goes, yeah, I think, yeah, in storage, I think. And I go, can I borrow one for uh, this DVD thing we're going to do? And he's like, yeah, I'll call Troy and make sure it's cool, but uh, whatever. So he called Troy I went and picked it up, and then the accident. So I still, I've got Troy's mic stand uh, under the bus. I still, t- I, it's on stage every night.
1: Oh man! And how I asked cool. Eddie.
0: I, I played with Eddie uh, a couple months back. Uh, it was six months ago, maybe. And I was like, man, I have this mic stand, and I don't know what to do with it. And give it back to. I goofy think it's in good hands. Give no. it to you, and no, and he was like, man, keep it on the road, man that's perfect good so, answer Eddie Montgomery yeah so I was pretty honored for that and, and that Eddie and Troy thing you start there start for a weekend turns in
1: yeah the Hibbilly Shoes they were on their second single uh, I forget what the second Hibbilly Shoes had just hit great yeah uh, Lonely and Gone I think was the second yep. single yeah it burned
0: that house down yeah yeah
1: uh, yeah man and we were all on one bus And uh, we built a hell of a team there. You know, it was amazing. I hired um, I hired Goofy. I hired Goofy from um, uh, Brooks and Dunn. Uh, Baja gave me Goofy.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: He let me take Goofy. I hired him as a monitor engineer. I remember. Remember that? Goofy can't mix. (laughs) Goofy knows everything technical about what you should do to mix. Yeah. But something. and we were on one bus. I really didn't need a production manager yet. Right. But he fixed... Uh, we had all the band from Kentucky. Eddie and Choi brought along their, their band. Their guys. Their guys from yeah. Kentucky. Uh, Bo and and uh, Frank are still there. Yep. Andy, Andy Bowers was the bass player. Right. And... Um, uh, somebody else oh, Tony Hammonds was playing drums yeah. they were Kentucky Randy, boys Randy Sorrels was, was in that yeah steel guitar yeah and Gemma wasn't there they had another acoustic player Wichita uh, yeah Wichita yeah. but um, they had a fiddle yeah, player for a minute too it, yeah that's right I forgot about that but um, uh, Gemma was with Montgomery was had auditioned and they wanted him to go on the road the next weekend yeah. he said I gotta give a two week notice which I really respect. Yeah. And he held to his guns. He's, he, he turned that. They didn't hire him because he said, I got to give a two week notice. Wow. So when Wichita left, he was the first Jim call. call.
0: Jimmy got the call. And Jimmy Maniac, for who uh, Robin's talking about, is uh, he's, he's an incredible guitar player. I mean, a virtuoso. And also, Three Fingers. Yeah, on his uh, on his playing hand. Yeah, he's
1: missing his index finger. Yeah, he was born that way. He it, it, it didn't lose it in an accident. He's action. got like a super finger. Yeah, and then <laughs> two little tiny things, and and the way his hand is yeah, set up. You have to talk to his wife about that. I
0: don't have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I asked him one time. I go, uh, I go. Does it? What? what how do you do that, all that without a pinky? You know, or whatever, whatever the finger. So, and he goes, man, a pinky just get in my way. <laughs> <laughs> so then you have so the Montgomery Gentry thing, and you're there. What a decade? Seven years. Seven years. Yeah. And as that
1: goes, and and I've been. Kind I did of seven years with with Highway 101. I did seven years with Montgomery Gentry. Yeah. I did seven years with Marshall Tucker. I guess I've had this. Uh, uh, what do you call that? It's one? like Lucky you, Sevens, man. Lucky Seven or indentured servitude, I'm not sure. Indentured <laughs> servitude. I'm not sure what do you call it. Like executive <laughs> Nanny, right? I mean, That's the mangler who was Highway 101's first tour manager. The road mangler? The road mangler. From was, Graham Parsons. From Graham Parsons. He's the guy that burnt Jay Graham took Graham Stole the body. Stole the body from the LA airport, took it out in the in the desert. To a Joshua tree, yeah, uh, and burn the body, his body, yeah. And when they, um, and when he they, was Highway 101's first tour manager. Really? Yeah. I didn't know he tour managed after the Graham thing. Yeah. Well, he still he still does Emmy Lou, I think. Does he? Yeah. The road I, I, We did a show with with the Mangler, and I walked into and I had an Emmy Lou hat. I'd gone out and bought one. I actually buy music still and yeah. merchandise instead of waiting for somebody to give you something, right? I walked in, I said, hey, can I get this signed? And Emmy Lou reached up, and I said, no, him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That story is crazy. Uh, He had a pact. Him and Graham Parsons had a pact that whoever would die first would take the other's body out and set their soul free by burning their body in the desert. Yeah. And uh, he waited. There's actually a movie about it. Johnny Knoxville's in it called The Grand Theft Parsons. (laughs) And... um, He went and stole, he rented a hearse, and the guy that owned the hearse rode with him not knowing what was going on. He told him it was, like, for his (laughs) or whatever, you know. He's like, oh, we're just, we're selling coffins or whatever. He's like, so there's no body in that coffin. No, there's no body in this coffin. We're just picking it up, (laughs) taking it out. And so they steal it, you know, and and they get it out to Joshua Tree, and he pours a bunch of gas in it. Gasoline. Gasoline. Yeah. throws it on there and it like it is like an explosion like a whoosh and he goes shit I think I used too much unleaded on that thing you know <laughs> and then he uh, his family obviously Graham's family was not very happy about it and uh, they sued him and I think the only thing he had to do was pay for the coffin because there's no intrinsic value to a body so he had to reimburse the family for the coffin <laughs> after burning his best friend in the, in the desert
1: He's still around Nashville. Is he really? Yeah, man. Yeah. I have to meet that guy. Oh, we'll go up. I know where he hangs out. We'll go look. Okay. Up. We'll go meet we him. We got to
0: do it. <laughs> so once you leave uh, the Montgomery Gentry set, um, you are currently on the biggest fucking tour on the planet. Uh, anytime it goes out. You guys are an unbelievable, and I've only just seen a glimpse of it um, when I was with Eddie and Troy, uh, opening for them, I was riding. That was an interesting thing as well, just to hit on like your slash story. I would. I was opening for Eddie and Troy. I was riding the crew bus with uh, Eric Matresha, who's now the road manager for <laughs> Joe Diffie. Uh, for Joe Diffie, yeah. and Robin has spawned all these incredible hard workers from Big Al and uh eric and all these guys who've gone on to do these amazing other gigs and and um, and so i was riding the crew bus which had a it had a distinct smell to it it was uh you know like somebody had washed your pillowcase and some skunk uh <laughs> paraphernalia and so i was riding. I, I would ride the bus and then you know eddie like he would do you'd be outside the bus something and Eddie would be like hey hey let's go to the bar actually they got margaritas and whiskey all right you know and i was young and so i'm like let's do this so i'd go in drink with eddie and have fun and as the night would progress you know eddie being wild ass as he is he'd be like hey come ride my bus you ride with me tonight yeah, come fuck to the crew bus come ride with me i would be like okay cool so we got on the bus and we pass the guitar around and sing old songs and drink whiskey and then go to bed And I would roll out of the bunk in the morning. You know, Eddie had a star bus, which is uh, a star bus has a full bedroom in the back. It's normally limited bunks, uh, you know, maybe two or three bunks and shower and stuff like that. There's no band on the bus. It's just the artist. And uh, I would roll out of the bunk in the morning and Eddie normally be sitting up on the couch or whatever and would look at me like what the fuck are you doing on my bus? How'd you bus? get here? How'd you get here? <laughs> <laughs> it was always that. I was always it was so uncomfortable. So i always go up to this driver <laughs> and go like, hey, are we going to stop anytime soon so I can get back on the crew bus? Because I feel really weird back here. <laughs> but So you leave Eddie and Troy, and you go to work uh, for Kenny Chesney. I did. Yeah. And how
1: long have you been? You've been there a long I just, time. Now. I just finished my 14th uh, touring season with Kenny. Wow. Yeah. And Kenny was, I mean...
0: Were you? Was it an arena tour when you started with Kenny?
1: Were yeah. You, was he doing the uh, stadium yet? No, we were doing yet? stadiums. The first show, we my first show with Kenny was actually in Salt Lake at an amphitheater, and the second show was a stadium uh, really? in Seattle. Yeah.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah. The business you guys are doing, number one, is incredible.
1: Yeah. So
0: <laughs> how many crew members do you have in the Kenny Chesney?
1: Well, it's, uh, you know, um, first off, let me say that I'm not... A tour manager with Kenny, right? David Farmer's the one that called me. Correct. There was something that went down with me and a couple of people with Eddie and Troy, and mm. the, it, it was some. Wasn't As, any bad blood between us, but something happened, and somebody had to um, take leave. A, take a leave. Yeah. Yeah. And three days later, David Farmer called and said, "Hey, me and Kenny's been talking about this. We want you to come out on the road with us the rest of the year and heal." That's the way you put it. Come on out here and heal. And heal? hmm Wow. Because they knew I'd been hurt. Yeah. And uh, well, that was 14 tours ago. <laughs>
0: and when you get so close to guy I mean, you live together. You eat together. You yeah. sleep. You get close very, very quickly. Yeah. You start spending seven years. I mean, you're doing it everything. It was just me
1: and Eddie on a bus. You know? Right. We were the only two.
0: And uh, you're a brother. You're a confidant. You're sure. a shoulder to cry on. You're the guy that makes sure that. Everybody Daddy gets what
1: gets, they need. Daddy, if we're flying out to a gig and I would throw the stuff in the suitcase, you know. Unreal. There was that time I put two left boots in there. That's kind of <laughs> No right boot. <laughs> Did Eddie even notice? Uh, oh, yeah. He noticed. <laughs> Troy Gentry loved it. I had to go to the camera guy and say, hey, we're shooting from the waist up today. <laughs> so you go out. To heal, yeah, I go out to heal with, and I'm the assistant tour manager with, with yeah, with, with them. So I'm David's assistant is what I am. It's a huge amount of responsibility. I do everything that David doesn't want to fuck with, basically. Yeah, <laughs> which is <laughs> no, I do, I do, uh, I do ticketing. I do uh, a lot of the financial things uh, uh, per diem. Right. and uh, uh, a lot of things that he just doesn't want to mess with, and right. doesn't have to because it's a big organization. We have. Uh, Uh, Average through the years, we've done 10 to 11 buses and have about 90 to 9,900 people on the road every year. Uh, We have 17 semis. So, automatically, you've got 28 drivers, 11 buses, 17 semis. So, that's part of the 90. it. Automatically. Yeah. Yeah. but then there's vendors. We use uh, a lighting company. We don't We don't own our own lights. We don't own our own sound. We own right. our stage and our band gear. Right. So everybody else is the vendors. Yeah. Um, we use more uh, lights and sound. Uh, we use a company for video also. And we have a trucking company. And we have a bus company. Sure. Hemp Hill Brothers upstaging for the trucks. Uh, so about 90 people. But from what I understand, there's... The band, there's the crew, there's the production team. Yeah. And then there's a few other employees that Kenny still keeps on salary and are at least retainers. Right. Um, for um, it's got to be over 30 people that wow. he keeps around all the time. And Kenny and David Farmer grew up together. They did. I yes. think since third grade or something like right. that. Best friends. David went into banking. They were, they were college roommates as well. Really? Yeah. They went off to college together, East Tennessee. And uh, the, the story I get is when uh, da- Kenny started making money instead of owing money to everybody right. because David was in banking. He said, I want you to, to come out here and take care of me. So wow. That's kind of the way I understand it. I don't know if that's true or not, yeah. but that's, that's the understanding I have. And David's been on the road, I believe, 21, 22 years now with Kenny. Unreal. Yeah. But, you know, my, my thing with Kenny, Kenny opened for Blackhawk. Uh, and Ooh. I knew he was a Knoxville boy, and I was born in Knoxville. I automatically had an affinity for that. Yeah, I re- I read. I I keep up with what's happening. Yeah. Uh, so I knew he was from Knoxville. Plus, the other deal was his first record deal was on Capricorn Records. Yeah. And that was Marshall Tucker Band's making, making Georgia, right? Almond Brothers and Wet Willie and. Uh, All the Southern Rock came out of Macon, Georgia. And I just read that Capricorn Studios is opening up uh, this December. They're... the studio for tours. Really? Which would be fascinating. I went through the big wow. house where the Allman Brothers in Macon, Georgia, a couple of years ago. Fr- a friend of mine named Richard runs the place down there. So he gave me, th- actually, I got the whole Dwayne's Gold Top, which just sold for $1 million. Oh my God. <laughs> I played Can't You See on it. Did you really? I did. <laughs> yeah. That's unreal. Yeah. So uh, that's that story.
0: <laughs> yeah. So 100 people on the road.
1: What yeah, time, what like time that.
0: and what what's your average day look like? Cuz when I was opening for Eddie and Troy and we we played the Seattle Quest Stadium yeah. with you guys. Yeah,
1: um and oh, I that's was right. yeah. I was
0: just there. I wasn't part of the show, but Eddie and Troy were opening and or one of the openers. Miranda, right. Eddie and Troy, there was a bunch of them. And um the scale of what you guys do out there well, is Well, there's the insane. stadiums.
1: The stadiums is a different Animal that on we take 17 semis, and all these people into arenas and amphitheaters. Right. And we load in at eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Just like any regular everybody does. Right. Eight a.m. load in. um, We use local stagehands. Right. For all that, and we usually get our stuff packed up within three hours. Unreal. At the end of the night. So the up is how long? Like six hours? Uh, Five hours? No. Three or four. Three or four. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we're the ready, we're ready to quicker, do a sound yeah. check by two two p.m. in the afternoon. Uh, with them. So six hours. But well, we take. You have to give union breaks. You have to do breakfast. We have to do lunch. Right. Um, they're ready by noon every day. Yeah. Sure. But um, and then the stadiums is a different animal. Um, that's about a seven day, full week to do a stadium we're not paying overtime usually especially if you load in on a sunday you've got time and a half automatically right so uh, you do a load in sunday you work an eight hour ten hour day whatever it is before you hit overtime you come back in you do the terraplast over the field you come back in on monday you build the steel and then we come in the day before the show doors are at four o'clock we bring the three acts in on saturday morning on the on show day on the stadium Uh, But we load in on Fridays, get everything up, whammy jammy, and turn up the lights and the music and party in a dang stadium on Friday nights. Oh, my gosh. Which you guys just (laughs) announced a huge stadium tour. We're going to do 19 next year. We've done, I believe it's 146 stadium shows so far.
0: That's unbelievable.
1: Unbelievable. Yeah. Including selling out Boston twice. Oh, we sell out Boston. I think we've done... I don't know how many sellouts we've done, but... No, just, but I mean, like, two nights in a row. Oh, yeah, yeah. We do... Uh, we just added a second show in Boston next year. Uh, Kenny just announced it two days ago, I believe. We, the first one sold out, so we added a second show in <laughs> Boston. I mean... Huge, like I, you look at acts that are like selling two nights
0: in an arena where you're like,
1: wow, that's that's some. I mean, it's about 120,000 tickets, 119,000 tickets. That's
0: un, unbelievable, yeah, absolutely unbelievable, yeah. And so, for people, like, I guess what we normally talk about the podcast is being too dumb to quit, which has been my mentor, <laughs> my, my, uh, not mentor, <laughs> my, uh <laughs> mantra. It's just. Too dumb to quit. Stick around. What when you? What are some of the things that you would tell somebody trying to get into this shit right now?
1: Of man, you know, my friend David Carr that that I met back in college. We sit around and smoked weed. Yeah, I mean, we were we were friends from that point of view. First, I'm enthralled because he's in a band. Uh, that I knew of, and he's my home, he's a, a hometown cat, and he's in this national band. The only other person that I knew at that time, uh, Billy Earhart. Uh, Billy E played uh, keyboards for Amazing Rhythm Aces, mm. and then he played keyboards for uh, Hank Jr. for 20 years. Wow. But he was in the Amazing Rhythm Aces, and they had just hit third rate romance. And now David comes along and uh, we were sitting around uh my house one night and he looked at my book of poems i was uh, i was in college and i uh, you know in in high school my english grades were d's and f's except during the six weeks that we did poetry and i'd get a's and b's <laughs> right so he looked at my my book of poems and he says man you're not a poet you're a songwriter this yeah. is iambic pentameter and i said well, what's iambic <laughs> pentameter <laughs> So uh, that's kind of where the whole thing started. Him and I started, you know, I blew harmonica. Yeah. And uh, we, we would jam and just the music. When I was offered the opportunity to quit college and go to work for a band that didn't have any gigs and never had any more gigs. Right. <laughs> right. I, I took the opportunity. Three months later, I was on the road with Marshall Tucker Band it's crazy can that happen these days no i don't think so i don't know man maybe i don't know
0: you know i think that there's always these special kind of anomalies
1: you know i think that um there's some people out there that are so i was too i was too dumb not to know not to take to to quit college right (laughs) i was too dumb not to go back to college right (laughs) when i realized that rich mountain tower was not going to get back together.
0: But if you, but if any of those dominoes fall a different way, your life is totally different. Totally. totally
1: if you different. don't take
0: that leap, you know, of, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, yeah, I think that, you know, you could fail being a fucking accountant. I think it's worth trying, you know?
1: Um, yeah. There's, there's probably one girl out there that thinks I've gotten a music business because her daddy was in it and she broke up with me. <laughs> <laughs> which is another true story I dated Charlie Daniels bus driver's daughter really? in 1974 and she's never spoken with me since <laughs> but I think you're she still thinks I was stalking
0: Charlie. her that <laughs> is a piece of advice I mean you take something away from everybody you work with everybody you fall in love with on the road when it comes to artists and, and brothers of the highway and what what are some of the, the the things that people told you along the way, you know I know you know, you kind of had like these, hillbilly Huck Fins out there of like Tommy Caldwell, you know you've told me some of the knowledge not
1: just not just those guys, it was Moon Mullins and it was uh, Ben Burnett and it was Steve Shropshire, yeah and it was uh, what would they tell Ronnie you Ronnie Ware what were the things Ron's dad right yeah right uh. That was Stump, Moon, Puff, Mojo. We all had nicknames because we had to have right. aliases during those times. Uh, but those guys are the ones that took me under their wing. Yeah. And Tommy Caldwell and Doug Gray and, yeah. and, and Toy Caldwell and Paul Riddle. Paul Riddle used to tell me that when I first started mixing, he said, man, this sounds like a, my living room. He called his mix his living room. Yeah, well, how does that help a, a young kid's ego? It just pushed me to be better and do better for them every night. Exactly. Uh, and you know, we called Paul earlier today before we started this this talk. And uh, two weeks ago, Moon Mullins still lives in Spartanburg, South Carolina. They all still live in Spartanburg. And uh, every it used to be every five years we would have a Marshall Tucker band road crew reunion right and we just had one two weeks ago and we all still get together and we all pick up right where we left off yeah and that's the way i have found that all of us gypsies uh, uh troubadours wandering minstrels yeah that's the way we all act yeah when we first we we're drawn to the music and uh the good times and the sad times in music. I mean, you can live all your emotions through music. Mm -hmm. And our lives just pick right back up with everybody I've ever been. And the team that we had with Marshall Tucker Band. and when I became a tour manager, that's the same way I govern. I want to build those teams with family and values. And uh, I I think I've done a good job Think you've done a hell of a job. Sticking to the formula. Yeah. So.
0: Everyone who knows you loves you. Everyone.
1: <laughs> it's incredible. Not that chick that I dated. <laughs> except for the 74. one <laughs> out of like fucking 20,000 is
0: not bad. That is not a bad ratio. Mine is way different.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, I, I love this industry, and I'm, I'm too dumb to quit.
0: Too dumb to quit. Yeah. Well, dude. The stuff that you've gone through on the road, you know, you had a liver transplant. I did. We killed a liver <laughs> along you the killed way. Killed
1: a liver along the way. I had hep C. And yeah. uh didn't know it. And they found out I had hep C for more than, probably more than 30 years when they found the hep C. So I had so much scar damage uh, on my liver, uh, which is the definition of cirrhosis. Yeah. It's it's not drinking. It's uh, scar tissue is what right. that is. And, um it was uh, we. I, it was inoperable so my only thing that I could have done was get a liver transplant right. and the grace of God uh, everybody in the music industry came to, to my aid uh, they threw a benefit for me and 17 different acts showed up to play music that night Amazing. and everybody I'd, I had worked for uh, Henry Paul with Blackhawk was instrumental and in putting it together stormy warren was the other person instrumental in put it together and a friend of mine named brian cruz out of north carolina promoter and now a manager uh he was the third one that helped put this thing together yeah and casey musgraves and uh just all kinds of people showed up paulette came from highway 101 and Jack daniels and uh all the marshall tucker crew drove over and uh Thirty-eight special. Mark was there. Mark Rogers uh, had sent something, and they all sent something to make money. And uh, John Berry came and performed. And uh, damn. Well, you have served so many kindnesses to
0: so many people. Um, that you you've always gone out of your way. The the, the greats, and and that's why I like Pootie, um, who we were talking about earlier with Willie Nelson. Pootie would make. A, a guy from North Idaho who does, deserves zero attention to feel like a rock star every time you showed up at a Willie Nelson show, or and you were the same way. You treated people with kindness from top to bottom, whether they were uh, the headliner or the opener or some punk ass kid. We'll
1: give you enough rope.
0: It's uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> But you can hang yourself. You were the the (laughs) definition of perseverance. I'm
1: a hard ass, and you know it. It's firm but fair. Firm but fair. Uh, And you treat people like you want to be treated. Yeah. I I believe in that. And you have no ego. That's the other thing I love about it. Don't tell my wife that. (laughs) (laughs) Misty will differ (laughs) with you. (laughs) But
0: I think that's just such an important part of it. When you know. Kind of a, another thing that I've been trying to practice is to to be less and do more. It doesn't hmm. matter where the credit lands. That's you know, true. In instances, and that's you've true. done a lot of that. You've done yeah. a lot of other people's work uh, throughout your career, and,
1: uh, and that's what we've got with Kenny right now. We've got a team. Yes. Uh, I, I'm kind of the low man on the totem pole. At, at 14 summers with him. Wow. Uh, you know Ed Mc. Ed Wanabo, the production manager has been with Kenny 20 years now, 19 years or something like that.
0: Mm.
1: Jill, the production assistant has been there 16 or 17. Farmer's been there 21. The bands all been there. Yeah, they're all pretty much all the same band guys. Well, we've got a new bass player and a couple of new guitar players since I've been there. But gosh, we got Kenny Greenberg playing and John Connolly is out with us now. We've got this new female bass player, I think this is her fourth or fifth year, Harmony McCarty, killer bass player. Really? Yeah. So uh, I can't wait to see one of the shows. Oh, man. We're going to do a bunch of them next year. Oh, I color. think we're doing about 40-something shows next year, something like that. Well, if
0: you need somebody to play in the parking lot, I'm your guy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Louis Messina, did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: man, thank you for the time.
1: Oh, I brother. would rather sit I'm here honored. and talk
0: for nine hours because... Your journey is amazing. We've
1: lost a lot of people already. That's you amazing. know that.
0: No, hell no. Whoever
1: hung the whole time, thanks. <laughs> Robin Majors, friends and neighbors. I love you, brother. I love you too, man. Go see Jeremy McComb live. Oh. I haven't seen him for a while, and I can't wait to see you soon. Well, thank you, man. Love you. Love you, <laughs>